So Money episode 859, Jonathan Walker, Executive Director of Elevate's Center for the New Middle Class. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Too often, we turn it into a blame game. You know, if you just get control of your finances, if you just live within your means. And one of the things that we have identified as the more that we study and the more people that I talk to is that sometimes it's not about living within your means. Sometimes it's about your life breaking your means. You know, one of the most financially fragile demographics in this country is women who have non-prime credit scores. They are a part of the new middle class. And these are women who experience challenges unlike many other parts of the population because they are often mothers, they're caretakers to elderly relatives, and they're the people in charge of their households. And their financial wellness matters to many people in their families and in their communities. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're tackling this important topic today, and our guest is spearheading research to better understand and help these women and all members of the the new middle class. Jonathan Walker is the executive director of Elevate's Center for the New Middle Class. There he conducts research to better understand the behaviors, the attitudes, and challenges of America's growing quote-unquote new middle class. We discuss what is the new middle class, what are the specific challenges that they have, and how is the new middle class forming and shaping our country's economics. Here's Jonathan Walker. Jonathan Walker, welcome to So Money. How are you? Doing great, Farnoosh. It's great to be here with you. I'm so happy you're here, especially because you're such a, a resource, such a, a a wealth of knowledge around, um, you know, just our attitudes, our behaviors, our challenges uh, as Americans when it comes to money and how we are managing money, not managing money. You're particularly focused on what is called the new middle class. So let's start there by first defining that for our audience and you know, what is it about this new middle class that is apparently so it's like fertile ground for learning about where this country is and where it's headed from a financial perspective? Yeah. You know, the new middle class to us is a fascinating space because in the old days, you know, 50 years ago, we talk about the new, the middle class as being kind of that uh, middle income right? Those, those who are making kind of just the, the basic income that is a living wage and, and kind of working Americans. Well, we know that that middle class is being thinned out a little bit. And, and when we started to look at the challenges of Americans, we started to realize that the, the real shift isn't so much as economic as it is uh, access to credit and access to those um, financial instruments that help people overcome the slight hiccups that happen in everybody's financial life. And so, you know, we define the new middle classes are people that have non-prime credit scores. So when, when we're doing our study, we study those who have 
a credit score below 700 and we compare them to people with prime credit, those over 700 who have access to whatever credit instruments that they need. You hear often about this population that is underbanked or the non-banked. And um, I sometimes wonder what is what is fueling that? Um, there's also this other area of, of financial markets, which is like, you know, these payday lenders and, um, you know, these credit debit cards that are, uh, sort of like, you know, they're not quite debit cards, but they're like cash cards. And I've always been skeptical of that. And they market specifically to these sort of, you know, as you described it, sub, um, subprime credit, uh, Mm-hmm. Credit, you know, people who have subprime subprime credit, and I wonder, is this just, you know, um, perpetuating this cycle, right, where they're never going to be able to get to a point where they're going to be credit worthy um, because uh, we're not giving them the right tools, the right resources, the right literacy to get there. Yeah, I think I think that if we unpack that a little bit, there are two things that are happening that that we really have to address in, in our society. And the first one is what causes people to fall into the non-prime space. And I think too often we believe that it's just uh, you know we 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 turn it into a blame game. You know, if you just get control of your finances, if you just live within your means. And one of the things that we have identified as the more that we study and the more people that I talk to is that sometimes it's not about living within your means. Sometimes it's about your life breaking your means. Uh, there are things that happen that are really genuinely out of people's control that that drop them into the non-prime, kind of disrupt their finances in a significant way. Um, and that second issue then becomes exactly what you're talking about. Once you're out of that prime space, how can you build yourself back up? How do you get back in there? And And so often the credit products that are available to people in the non-prime space don't report to the credit bureaus. And so what that means is that they are, they have a longer road to, uh, to, to walk in order to get back to the prime space. Because if you don't have uh, good credit behavior reported to the credit bureaus, it's, it takes a lot longer for, um, you know, things that are, uh, you know, poor marks on your credit report to fall off of it. And so have you found in your research what may be some of these success stories or how do people pivot successfully from being, um, you know, I guess subprime to getting out of that and then actually building credit? It, you know, it's a kind of a, a chicken or egg situation. It's like you can't get credit until you have good credit, but how do you get good credit? <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's exactly the 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 uh, trap that we we hear some people come into. In fact, I talked to a person, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago, really savvy, um, you know, young, probably 22, 23 year old. And uh, I had asked him why he took a, a, a loan with a company. And he looked at me and he said, well, I really didn't need the money. And I kind of just my jaw dropped, right? I'm like, well, why would you take money uh, from this company? He said, they were the only ones that would lend me money and they report to the credit bureaus. And I knew that if I could just build that, you know, history, 
I would be able to get on top of that. And he said, and I'm, and, and I kind of looked at him and I said, well, is it working? He's like, he said, yeah, in the last three or four months of paying it off, my credit has improved uh, 25 to 30 points. So wow. I, I think in answer to your question, when people are trying to get themselves out of the non-prime back into the prime space, um, there's, there's a couple of things that they, they do. They really focus. They understand what they need to do. They pay attention. And um, they're fairly militant about uh, being very disciplined mm-hmm. uh, to get on top of things. And, and one, of the, one of the guys I talked to who was doing that, uh, I followed up with three or four months later. And he's like, yeah, I hit a hiccup. And, but I'm still, I'm still working on it. And, and I think that second point is, is that hiccup. Uh, one of the big challenges for the non-prime people is that when they run into a financial problem, uh, the hurdle is much lower for it to be a, a significant problem. Uh, and it's because they don't have other ways like a credit card to put, you know, your, you know, if you got to repair, replace your tires, uh, you're less likely to have, uh, you know, other means to cover those costs. And so they tend to have uh, you know, on average, $1,200 will cause financial disruption to people's lives if you're non-prime, whereas if you're prime, $2,900 expense will cause disruption. So mm. one of the things that is is challenging for them is how do they avoid the challenges that are bound to happen in their lives as they're rebuilding? You call them the new middle class. So it begs the question, the old middle class versus the new middle class. If we were to compare this, this, this group of people to a generation ago, what are you seeing? Are we better off, worse off? And if we're worse off, what's changed? Yeah. So we call them the new middle class because they're the new kind of in the pinch. Uh, So they're not the poor. Uh, and they're not the completely unbanked. And I think you, you kind of alluded to that's a whole different societal problem that we need to address. But this new middle class, these are people who are the accountants, they're the nurses, uh, they're the, uh, you know, federal workers. They're the people who have decent jobs, um, but they're a little bit more fragile financially than we were, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And that fragility um, is is spawned by, you know, healthcare issues. Uh, there's a little less um, stability in job uh, and retirement. Uh, there's a little bit more um, instability when it comes to education and the cost of education. Um, and so these are the things that kind of put them in a much more fragile state. And that's why I think it's easy for people to run into trouble, even though they have good, solid, stable uh, employment. You have so many uh, data points around this, uh, this market, this new middle class. And some of the startling things, I'm looking at it now, just some of the bullets, um, 52% of the new middle class more likely to deny themselves of the comforts to save money. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that, you know, we, we need to put aside this belief that 
if you have tr credit problems, it's because you couldn't keep the plastic in your pocket, right? That, oh, I just, I just have to buy this because I want it. Or uh, I'm going to go on vacation and, you know, the consequences, uh, I'm not going to worry about the consequences. And I think what you're seeing with a statistic like that is that half of the new middle class is actually highly conscientious about how they're spending their money so that they are not, uh, they're not, um, you know, throwing caution to the wind, but they're actually denying themselves some of the comforts of life in order to keep control of their finances. What's also a little sad is that many believe um, they're more likely to believe that their finances will worsen. They're not very optimistic from your end. Are you seeing some developments in the space, maybe some instruments, some tools, literacy that you think uh, is worth getting excited about, that there is a lot of opportunity still for people who feel like they're in this demographic and are in this demographic? Yeah, it's interesting. When we really look at this group, uh, uh, the whole non-prime space is not monolithic. There are a lot of different pockets of people. And what you're talking about are are those who feel very much trapped in where they are. And it's a mentality that is not altogether, um, you know, um, uh, they've come by that honestly in the sense that sometimes they do struggle with understanding how they're going to get out of, of the situation they're, they're in. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges and one of the things that at the Center for the New Middle Class we've been trying to champion is we need to understand these people better so that we can provide better products and services for them. I think too often the really cutting edge financial services tools that are coming out are really designed for prime people. Uh, they're designed uh, for people who um, you know, just make their lives easier rather than giving them a lift. And, and I am, uh, I'm not sure that I see a ton of great products out there that help people lift themselves out. Uh, there are, are a lot of financial literacy tools out there. Um, but there are fewer, uh, tools that really help them manage their way out. I think the most effective ones are the ones that help people manage their day-to-day -day cash flow um, so that they can get on top of the challenges that happen to them uh, on a daily basis. Hmm. Your, your work also focused on the plights of women in this, uh, in this market. And um, what, what did you find? I'd love for you to share some of the highlights in that space. Uh, oh, yeah. So one of the things that, that I, I want you to be the bearer of bad news, not me. Okay. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for making me the bad guy. <laughs> so, um, so non-prime women are, are more likely are less likely to be salaried workers. Uh, that means they're a little bit more fragile in terms of the actual stability of their income. Um, you know, only 13% of the non-prime women uh, have a significant amount of money put aside for emergencies. Uh, and they're four times as, as likely as prime women uh, to, to predict their monthly income. And what I think is also the reason we call this a societal problem and not just a, 
a, a women problem is because the non-prime women are more likely to have children in the household. They're more likely to have disabled or um, elderly adult that they're caring for. So the fact that um, the non-prime women are more fragile than even the non-prime men is um, compounds itself through society because they are touching and they are, are affecting and they're helping more of the disadvantaged people in our society. Yes. Well, when I say, you know, when the world, when women make more, the world becomes a better place. It's to your point, you know, we're already in a position of helping and supporting um, as a percentage of, as a percentage of our salaries, even though we make less on average than men, women are more charitable. And, Absolutely. and that's at all income levels. And so just putting more money in their hands, putting more financial resources in their hands, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. So yeah, it's, it's very important to me and I'm sure, you know, important to you to, to make sure that women get, um, even maybe some more attention on this, on this stuff because we're living longer too, Jonathan. I know. <laughs> we, we have, for so many reasons, we need the money. That's right. And, and, and really it is to your point, it is, it is, it reverberates through society and it's not just about women. And if we think of it as only a women's issue, then um, we're never going to make the headway that we need to. Would love to transition a little bit more to your personal journey with money and how you even got to being so curious about this aspect of uh, the financial health of America and maybe take us back, you know, a few steps to how you even embarked on this and what drew you to it from a personal interest standpoint. Yeah. So uh, much of my professional history um, revolves around um, market research, consumer insights. So I've spent a lot of time interacting with people and, um, to me, this has been the most rewarding and richly, um, uh, most richly rewarding aspect of my my career has been being able to really talk to people because money is where people's uh, kind of hopes and dreams can either be made or broken. Um, and when you talk to people about the challenges that they have in their, in, in their finances, you get at the heart of the things that matter to them. You get at their values. You start to understand uh, what they hope for, for their families as well as for their own future. And so for me, um, I, 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 I find great hope in, in, in working with people and talking with them and understanding what they're doing. And I just find it endlessly fascinating. Take us back even further to childhood. What's your earliest yeah. money memory? <laughs> I have I have two memories that that I think really helped define kind of my my approach to money. One was, um, you know, I grew up in in a fairly large family. There were seven children, and I remember one particular evening that my parents pulled us all together. And, uh, my, my dad had monopoly money and, and what he was doing was he put out, laid out on the coffee table in front of us, um, essentially, uh, a mock amount of money, uh, that is what would be our family household, uh, income. And of course I was too young to even, uh, uh understand whether it was a real amount or whether it was a, a symbolic amount, 
But then he would proceed to go through and say, and this much of it goes to pay for the mortgage, and this percentage of it goes to pay for this. And he kept taking dollars away until we were left with just a small amount of money. And he said, that's the amount of money that we need to pay for our our um, groceries and our clothes and anything else that we need in, in a month. And to me, it was a really powerful um, illustration as a child to understand that money comes from somewhere and it goes somewhere. And it's just not, uh, it, it's just not free. No, it's not free. Um, we uh, haven't moved to Monopoly yet in our household. My kids are a little too young for that. But um, we do have Candyland. Um, yeah. And we have, uh, what is it? Uh, the Game of Life, which I think, you know... <laughs> I'm trying to find financial ways to like, I'm trying to find the ways to bring in finances into these uh, games, but it's not been easy. Um, no, it, it isn't easy. And, and, uh, years ago when my children were a little bit younger, uh, I, I created this little game that was supposed to teach them the value of, um, getting a good education. And, and the game was this forced scarcity where, uh, you were trying to build a home. Did you want to be the person architecting the home? Did you want to be the person building, contracting to build the home or the, the construction worker? And, and I created it such that, uh, there were much fewer architects in the game than construction workers. So I was trying to teach them that if you, you need to have skills, um, that would enable you to be worth someone wanting to pay you more money. Um, but yes, it's, it's a tough thing. How do you teach children, especially, uh, as they're very young, uh, the value of money and, um, you know, the value of, of kind of protecting investments. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still kind of the new year. Uh, 2019 is, we're now like, well, this is airing in um, March, but it's still Q1. Um, so I'm asking guests uh, in partnership with our sponsor, Chase, what is your New Year's resolution, Jonathan? Financial resolution. Oh, my financial resolution. Um, you know, one of the things that my wife and I do fairly regularly is we sit down and just kind of take stock in everything in our, all our finances. And one of the things that we do when we do that, we sit down and we say, what are the things that we want to accomplish? What, what are our resources right now? How much are we putting in savings or investment? Should we be adjusting that? And, and for the new year, one of the things that we did was looked at that and said, are there things that we want to accomplish this year uh, that aren't, you know, weren't necessarily in our plan last year? And so for us, uh, it's really about, you know, for, for 2019, our goal was to sit down and just really be a little bit more mindful of the resources, the limited resources that we have and what we're going to do with those uh, to, to make sure that we have a better plan for the future. It's so smart. One of the best things that I, I ever heard on this show and what you just said really echoes this. So I love it. What you're saying is, you know, especially as couples look ahead and try to, you know, stay on budget, your life changes all the time. You know, the, you set a budget last year, this time of year. And by now, I mean, think about all the things that have changed. 
membership uh, subscriptions, whatever that you've got that no longer are necessary or expenses you are saving for that have pivoted. And so it really is important. Um, this couple was telling me that they do what they call like taking their budget to ground zero, basically rebuilding every year, imagining if their lives were coming together today and you know, of course they've been married forever, but like, okay, let's say we just kind of um, merged our lives together and we have what we have. We have our children, we have, you know, but does where we want to go this year, is that reflected in our spending? Is it reflected in our saving and in our investing? And and you may find that you're still uh, should stay the course. And other times you might find, no, I, there are things that definitely have no more room or no uh, relevance to where uh, we are in our lives. And, and so it's a great exercise and something that I think could bring couples together, frankly. Well, yeah. And, and, and more than you know, more than you're even saying, one of the things that we did a study last year about couples and finances at the Center for the New Middle Class, and we found that couples who um, kind of shared uh, their financial goals with each other and were very open about defining what those goals were, were 32% less likely to argue uh, about finances and about other things as well. And I think that that gets at what you're talking about is so much of money is wrapped up in our values, in what we want to accomplish, what our hopes are for the future. And and the more you can talk that out with your Mm -hmm. spouse and understand that, the more other parts of your life kind of fit together and and you are more able to accomplish the things that you want uh, to do as a couple. Your background, Jonathan, let's talk about that for a second. Your career background is uh, you worked at Radio Shack as the director of marketing analytics. Then you were at, before that, you were at Hollywood Entertainment, holding roles in merchandising and strategic planning. Your current role as executive director of Elevate's Center for the New Middle Class seems like a complete kind of departure from your previous professional world. Or, or uh, what, what are the, what is that bridge? Yeah. So the the thread that flows through all of that is um, just how conscientious I've been in my career uh, about understanding the consumer, uh, what drives them, what what matters to them, uh, why they make the decisions they make. In every one of those jobs previously, that's one of the the key components that that I focused on. So. Uh, when I came to Elevate and um, they asked me to launch the Center for the New Middle Class, uh, I think one of the reasons for that was because of my kind of rich background in understanding, uh, you know, consumer behavior, uh, understanding how to get at some of those um, understanding both qualitatively in talking with people and quantitatively so that we can have statistics that that people can rely on to be reliable. And so that's kind of the thread. It doesn't seem like there's a a clear thread there, but uh, it really is all about understanding people. No, I love it. I love that, you know, it it really also, I think, teaches people that you can – you can parlay into any field you want. It's really about what is that story, right? And you've, you've obviously connected those dots, but sometimes from the offset, it doesn't, it doesn't appear like it's going to be a linear transition, but it's really about understanding how can I take the skills and my perspectives 
from this current job into the next job, even if it's in a completely different field, um, you know, your skills remain your skills and those are completely applicable to, you know, new, new uh, work environments. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and, and that is, you know, we're becoming a society where you need to be more and more flexible uh, in order to survive. And so you're right, you know, make your skills portable. Uh, and the other is have a passion for what you do. Uh, cause people will feel that passion and kind of want, want you to be part of what they're doing. Well, I can sense the passion from you, Jonathan, and thank you for coming on the show. Before I let you go though, would love to ask you some so money fill in the blanks. All right. All right. You game. So I'm don't, game. <laughs> don't need, no need to overthink. Just first thing that comes out of your mind. When, if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is. If a big pot of money or a little pot of money. Big. Like, I mean. Uh, I'd probably launch a scholarship fund. I'd probably buy a architecturally interesting house. I've always wanted to live in a really interest. doesn't need to be a big house, just an architecturally interesting one. Yeah. Do you, did you feel like you wanted to pursue architecture or design at one point? Um, a little bit. I, I just, I love kind of, um, you know, I love the, the feeling that you create a life around yourself. And I believe the space that you're in does that. Uh, I've always loved, you know, kind of beautiful and interesting architecture. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? I am, I, I have to admit, I'm the cheapskate of, of my, uh, of between my wife and I. Um, I, as a household, what do we spend? That's a tough one because I just, I, I, I'm, I'm tight fisted. I probably, if I, if I were, if I were smarter about my money, I'd probably hire people to, to do my lawn care and house maintenance. That would make my life much better. And I, I probably need to do more of that. Yeah. Time is money. Time is money. Time is money. Uh, all right. When I donate, I like to give to blank because one of the things that we give to is childhood cancer research uh, because, you know, we had a son who went through childhood cancer and, and got through it. But uh, that experience just kind of showed me that, you know, children of all people in our society should not be suffering and whatever we can do to kind of help find a way uh, to alleviate that kind of deeply unfair suffering is something that we believe in. I love that. And happy to hear too, that your child is healthy now. Yeah. He's, he's been out of cancer treatment for, uh, eight years. Wow. So he's doing great. That's so tough. That's, that's not fair. Children should not have to have to go through that. Exactly. Um, okay. And last but not least, I'm Jonathan Walker. I'm so money because I'm so money because I'm not defined by money. Not defined by money. And so money, I think, for trying to really, um, you know, contribute to society as someone who is really trying to understand the needs of the growing new middle class. Thanks so much for your work, for your attention to this, to this, uh, to this market, to this demographic. So needed. Thank you so much. 
Barnoosh, it was a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You can follow Elevate's Center for the New Middle Class on Twitter at New Mid Class. And you can also learn more at elevate.com. All this information is back at somoneypodcast.com. While you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh. If you have a money question for me, I'll save it for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.